The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Did a book from the 18th century lead to dozens, if not hundreds, of deaths? And then we traveled to California, where one night a young girl answered the door, and the unthinkable happened. There were no clues to her death until her ghostly image appeared on a nearby billboard. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I gotta be honest, man. I've recorded three versions of this. This is version three. This first story had a really hard time not being super depressing when I'm telling it. So let's see how... I gotta record it eventually, or I just ditched the whole story. I do think it's an interesting story, though. Let's talk about suicide. Now, what I really want to get to is this really interesting story. So as I'm going down this internet rabbit hole... I was researching the Golden Gate Bridge because I was researching Ghosts of San Francisco for an upcoming episode. They started talking about the suicides on the Golden Gate Bridge. And then I just kind of started doing all of this research on all of these weird things that pop up when they look at suicide. I'm not going to talk about that stuff. It's too depressing. So, as I'm going down this rabbit hole, though, I found out about a thing. And it's pretty commonly known called suicide contagion. And that is where when... Somebody who is famous or in a particular peer group kills themselves, we see it spread. I've told people before, I've, I've talked to people who are kind of like at the end of their rope, and they're like, I got, I'm going to end it, man, I'm going to do it. And I, I always tell them this. I, I have a couple different tools for talking to people out of suicide, and who knows how effective. Well, I know it's been effective for me because they haven't killed themselves, but one of the things I've talked to people and I said, uh, it's a contagious disease. When we look at families, when somebody in the family kills themselves, it's usually not isolated. Daughter kills herself, uncle kills themselves, brother kills himself, brother kills himself. You know, it's stuff like that. It's a contagious disease. That came, The reason why I've discovered that is because of stuff like suicide contagion. There's a town, I think it's in Scotland or Ireland, called Bridgend. And there was a documentary made about this town. And they had this cluster, suicide cluster. He had all the young people or a bunch of young people in town killing themselves. As the documentary is being made, one of the guys being interviewed for the documentary kills himself. Now, he doesn't do it during the interview. The guy's not like, hey, so tell us a little bit about your friends. And he's like, yeah, sure, let me get this chair set up first. And the guy's just filming it. But through the creation of the documentary, the guy killed himself. Now, there's been debate about that documentary. Some people say that it's sensationalized and so on and so forth, but... You do have these things, suicide clusters, a suicide contagion. And as I'm reading about this stuff, and again, it's fairly depressing. As I'm reading about this stuff, I came across the story. And it's actually, suicide contagion has another name. It's called the Werther Effect. I thought this was fascinating stuff. Fascinating. Let me tell you this story. Now, I haven't read this book. I'm sure a lot of you have. Let's go back in time to the year 1774. 
I tricked you there. You thought I was going to say 1777. I was just looking at my notes wrong. 1774. Let's hop in the Carpenter-Copter. And now we're back. It's provincial Germany, I believe. So a bunch of little thatched huts with Belle. Is, was that her name? Belle? Not Bella, right? Belle from Beauty and the Beast is walking around. And, um, you know, she would have been okay if she'd ended up with Gaston. She she really would. I think they would have made it work out. I know a lot of Bells who ended up with Gastons in real life. It works out. He was a cad, but he didn't deserve to die. Like, he didn't go that extra level. He wasn't trying to really hurt anybody. He was trying to bed this beautiful woman. He would have been better off with those blondes anyways, but he wanted to marry this beautiful woman, and then he found out that a monster kept her prisoner, which was really going on. And he gets the townspeople to rescue her, which she really was a prisoner. He didn't know she had fallen in love with this monster, and he falls to his death. I think he's probably one of the most tragic Disney villains. He's a, he is a cad, but he it wasn't like he was like broken her house one night, was like trying to rape her, and then she ran and got kidnapped by the beast or nothing like that. He was just an idiot who wanted the best chicken town, i.e. me. So... I have a lot of sympathy for Gaston. They might have retconned him in the live-action movie where they made him more evil, but I didn't watch that garbage. And as and you're just looking at me as I'm ranting about beating the beast as I'm trying to navigate, trying to land this helicopter in this German village. You're like, dude, you just landed on all those sheep. And I was like, and another thing, that, that little dude who was out here like, oh, you jump out of the helicopter before we've even landed. It's 1774, and there's a young German author named Johann Wolfgang Von Goeth? Goeth, I think is how you pronounce it. It's spelled Gotha, but I'm pretty sure it's not Gotha. We'll call him Goeth. And this dude, Goeth, is writing this book. That's what it sounded like back then when you wrote. It sounded like ants marching. It sounded like Dave Matthews' band song. Dun, 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 dun. That song was playing every time you wrote something. That's why there's not a lot of literature from back then. It's not true. There's a ton of it. So anyways... He's writing this book. Goth is writing this book, The Sorrows of Young Werther. So here's the story, dude. There's this dude named Werther, right? He's like Werther's original. That's where they got that name from. That delicious, hard caramel. Let's put one in our mouth for the rest of this adventure. Delicious, hard caramel is named after this lovable young scamp, Werther. So he's chilling in this town in Germany, right? And he meets this beautiful woman named charlotte and he's like oh dude he's like hey char what's up and she's like "Ooh, what's your name and he's like i'm werther here have a caramel candy so she bites down on it and breaks a bunch of her teeth and he's like no you're supposed to suck it so he gives her another one anyway so he's hanging out with charlotte now charlotte is about to be married to this older man named albert and werther's totally in love with this chick though right and albert's just kind of like hey werther what's up they all start hanging out together so he actually moves in with them. So Werther is chilling there. And then you have Charlotte, the love of his life, the only woman he's ever wanted to be with. And then Albert is just kind of walking around and, you know, living there, too. He didn't just walk by the house. He's like, hey, that's my house. But I'm just walking by. So anyways, he's totally like, just like, oh, my God, like this the torment in my heart is killing me. I'm in love with this woman. She's with this other guy and it, they're going to get married. But maybe I can woo her. Maybe something will work out here. Maybe somehow, against all odds, we can do this. 
And then he's like, no, I can't. I I have to leave. Like, yeah, we're really good friends, but I got to leave. So he bounces out. And for a couple months, he goes to this other town. Now, I'm reading all of this from Wikipedia because I'm going down this suicide rabbit hole. So so I could be totally off of major details. You could be like, no way. Albert was a bricklayer. And that was symbolic of him, like, putting bricks on stuff. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I'm just reading the Wikipedia thing. So anyways, here is a... I don't understand this. This makes me think it's a different novel, a, an awesome novel. This is, he goes to the other town, and there's this sentence in uh, Wikipedia. He goes to this other town, okay? He, quote, he suffers great embarrassment when he forgetfully visits a friend and unexpectedly has to face there the weekly gathering of the entire aristocratic set. He's not tolerated and asked to leave since he is not a nobleman. Which makes me think that all of a sudden it became a Rodney Dangerfield story where he's like, yo, I get no respect. The woman I love is with someone else. I'm like nothing over there. And it's a bunch of people with their little like wine glasses going, what? I never. He's not an aristocrat. Like he basically shows up at his buddy's house with a six pack. He's like, yo, Ralph, let me in. It's Werther. And he goes in and it's basically Wayne Manor during a ball where everyone's dressed up in their suits. Not their Batman suits, dressed up in their suits and ties. There's violin music playing. He's like, whoa, what kind of party is this? Yo, Ralph, things have gotten real snazzy for you. And they're like, you're not an aristocrat, please leave. And he's like, what? I get no respect. I get no respect. Half my audience is like, who the hell is Rodney Dangerfield? And why doesn't he get respect? And no one knows the answer to that question. But apparently, so he goes to his buddy's house to chill. And there's a huge party going on. And they kick him out. So now he has no choice. But to go back to Charlotte and Albert, when he gets back there, when he goes back to Charlottesville, he finds out that they're already married. And he's like, oh, are you kidding me? I truly do get no respect. And he can't live with the fact that he can't be with Charlotte. So he decides, listen, one of three things has to happen. Either he dies, she dies, or I die. And he goes, well, I would never want to hurt anybody else. So I'm going to kill myself. So he asks Albert, hey, do you got two pistols I can borrow? I'm going to go on a, quote, an adventure. And Albert goes, that's weird. Why did you say, quote, an adventure? And he's like, well, that's just what Wikipedia said. I'm going on an adventure. Albert goes, fine. Yeah, sure. I don't know why you would need two pistols, but here you go. Albert goes, thank you. And then he goes back to his house. Where was he living? Where did the... Maybe he was doing this outside. Anyways, the point is that he goes somewhere away from them. He's not standing in front of them and going like, how you like me now? Like, he goes somewhere else. And the story is written as like a collection of letters. It's supposed to like supposedly a true story. And in some ways it is. Anyways, he goes and he pulls out a pistol and he blows his brains out and he doesn't die. He basically just bleeds there for a while, just sits there bleeding. And the book... Let you know that it takes 12 hours for him to die. So it's not even just like it's this instant death. He's all, uh, as he's bleeding out, dies. The book also wants you to know that at his funeral, there was no clergyman and Charlotte and Albert didn't even show up to the funeral. So totally died alone. That is the story of Werther. So that story was the story that made Goth super famous. Like he became an Overnight celebrity. It would be like one day you were walking down the street and the next day you were on Jersey Shore. Level famous. He was the situation of the 1770s. And the book, 
I've been in that situation multiple times in my life where I like meet a chick and she's with a dude and they're married and I'm like, yo, dude, we'll hang out. And then I've been there to be pining over a girl in a relationship and I've lived with them. Like, it's totally real. I've done this stuff and I've gone to parties and gotten kicked out of parties. Obviously, I didn't blow my brains away, but I've been there. And so I'm reading this, and I'm like, dude, this is super relatable. This is super relatable to me. I think I've done this twice, honestly. I think I've been in love with a girl, moved in with her, and she was married or had a boyfriend at the time, both. But both times I was like, ah, this ain't working out, and bounced. But I totally relate to this character. And this is one of the things that's fascinating. Everyone else related to this character, too. Every so often a book will come along that people really, or a movie or a song, it's usually a book or a movie, but they take off because people can absolutely 100% relate to that character. And this guy became so relatable that supposedly young men all over Europe were reading this book and going, you got two guns. And they dressed up like he became super fashionable to dress up as Werther. He's a very emo character. He's a very, like, tortured character. But people begin dressing like Werther and shooting themselves in the head. And some people have said, no, 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 that didn't happen or it didn't happen on the scale people think it did. It's apocryphal. It's a rumor. But we do know the book was incredibly famous and historians and researchers say there was a spate of suicides of young men found dressed in the type of clothes or dressed in his style shooting themselves in the head they said some people even went so far to get the same pistol that's described in the book to do the deed fascinating fascinating stuff and obviously goth wasn't like (laughs) step one write a book about a young man killing himself step two everyone kills himself like that wasn't his plan It wasn't his plan at all. But he wrote the book, and it was based on his true story. Like, his elements of it were that he obviously didn't kill himself either, but the emotional stuff. And as time went on, he distanced himself from the story. It was basically, like, again, his first big novel. It's one of those things that you're a band, you release a hit song, you're Destiny's Child, and you release Bootylicious. And then 30 years later, people are yelling at Beyonce, hey, do Bootylicious, do Bootylicious. Yeah, I don't want to do that. That was basically his Bootylicious. It made him famous, but he distanced himself for it. However, I thought this was an interesting little note too. However, even though he distanced himself from this book that caused a bunch of people to kill themselves, he wouldn't let anyone else do anything to the book. I didn't know how else to segue that. There was this dude, because the book was super popular. There was this other author named Frederick Nikolai. And he wrote a satire of the book called The Joys of Young Werther. And in the he changed the ending. So basically, the book's totally different. And then he changes the ending where when he asks Albert for the guns, Albert, instead of putting bullets in the gun, puts chicken blood in the gun. So when Werther goes to shoot him, it's funny because it can't be that much of a difference from the plot if it still ends with him trying to kill himself. But he grabs the gun, pulls the trigger, and just a bunch of chicken blood shoots out. Which is, that's incredibly traumatizing. Because he still goes through the whole mental process of deciding to end his life. And then it's like, wah, wah. And he's just like covered in blood. And he's like, what? That that showed me no more depression for me. And then Albert gives Charlotte to Werther. It was a satire. And that made Goth, this was 
like from what I understand, this is like two decades after the original version came out. Goth had already distanced himself from his novel. He's furious that someone would write the again. It was his life story in a way. It was his emotional journey. Furious that someone would write this. So then Goth writes a a poem called Nikolai on Werther's grave. So it gets meta here. He writes a poem that we're back in the Werther-verse. We're back in the universe where Werther actually killed himself. And his grave is underneath like a lime tree or a pine tree or something. What was it again? Yeah, it was a lime tree. It was underneath a lime tree. Oh, Napoleon Bonaparte loved this book so much he carried it with him. That's it. That was another just factoid. Anyways, so he wrote this poem about Werther's grave is sitting there. Obviously, they don't move around. Their graves aren't known to be quite mobile. And Nikolai walks up to the grave. This is a poem, by the way. Nikolai walks up to the grave, looks at it, pulls his pants down, and takes a steaming fat dump on Werther's grave. And that's basically the poem. And they became rivals until they died. Goth and Nikolai begin just constantly like hate writing people. Suicide Contagion, a.k.a. the Werther Effect, based on the book that inspired men to kill themselves. And I can almost guarantee you, sadly enough, that this book probably still does that. I think it's probably harder to get a flintlock pistol and a big old floppy hat. But I'm sure the book is so relatable, stories relatable, that people are still reading it and going, well, if it worked for him, it'll work for me. It's, yeah, bizarre stuff. But let's go ahead, and we're leaving behind the story of Werther, the sorrow of Werther. Ugh, what a relatable story. Anyways, leaving it behind. You're like, Jason, are you over it? And I was like, yes, yes, I am over it. You don't happen to have a place I can live for a while, right? How's your wife doing? And you're like, ah, you're never staying at my house. Now that I know that you have designs on men's wives when you live with them. I'm like, what? No, I don't. That wasn't what I was saying as my eyes shift from side to side. I've never figured it. My mom thinks that I have a, like, mental disorder. She goes, you always fall in love with women you can't have. You're constantly falling in love with married women all the time. And I go, that's not true. As I <laughs> pull a pistol out of my, okay, that was dark. That was dark. Okay. And she's like, where'd you get those two flintlock pistols? I'm like, I'm going on an adventure. Okay, that did that. Okay, anyways. So, uh, good old jokes about committing suicide and falling in love with the wrong women. Let's forget all that stuff. We are going to June. No, we're not. We're going to Chula Vista, California. It's June 19th, 1991. You know, I'm not a big, big person who believes in a lot of like numbers, numerology, and changing these codes up and stuff. I've talked about it, but this did strike me as odd. Chula Vista, California. That part's not odd. That's just a city in California. June 19th, 1991 at 9 p.m. And June is the sixth month. If you turn it upside down, you get an upside down six. Are, there are, that joke aside, there are a lot of nines involved in this. There's a lot, actually. Very, very weird. What? I'm even seeing more. Okay, I gotta start doing this. Chula Vista, California. It's 9 p.m., June 19th, 1999. There's a young girl in the house. Her name is Laura Arroyo. She's nine. She's nine years old. It's a true story, by the way. It's a true story. She's upstairs reading a book with her mom, and there's a knock at the door. Knock, knock, knock. And she jumps out of bed, and she goes, I'll get it, I'll get it. And she runs downstairs. Now, the mom is thinking, it's kind of late, but this Chula Vista area they were in, kind of a nice neighborhood, and friends would always kind of, like, come over and be like, hey. She doesn't really think too much of it. 
And then as she hears Laura running down the hallway, she hears Laura say, who is it? And then the door opens. And then she doesn't hear anything. And the mom goes, oh, it must have been one of her friends talking about homework or something like that. But after about 10 minutes, she goes, "Uh uh-oh, like, where's my daughter at? Like, if it was a casual conversation, they would have come in. Where's she at? So mom jumps out of bed and Laura's gone from her front door. Obviously, police are called very shortly. Father's looking for her. Mom's looking for her. Neighbors are all looking for this girl. She's disappeared. At 6.30 a.m. the next morning, four miles away, her body is found at a business park, and she's been murdered, and there are... Uh, there, there was signs of sexual assault. So, obviously, just the disappearance had the police working high gear. Now, they're absolutely freaking out about this whole thing. And no, they can't find who did it. They are looking all over for the murderer of a nine-year-old, an assaulter of a nine-year-old girl. This is an interesting case. There's a paranormal angle. I'm not just going to talk about this horrible crime. It's an interesting case because you can find it's very well publicized. You can find a ton of articles detailing everything. A couple weeks after the murder, we're in the month of July now. There in town was a billboard that was no advertisement was put up on. It was a blank billboard. It was in between someone saying, "Hey, I want to put my advertisement on there." So it would stand there on the street corner. Just white with the lights shining up on it. That's the sound of lights at night in Chula Vista. And one day someone's driving down the road and they're looking at the billboard and they go, What? They're kind of squinting. They're like, That looks weird. Someone else driving down that same road at night's looking and they're like, What the hell is that? Now, missing girl. Young little nine-year-old girl. Her photo was plastered everywhere. Everybody knew what this girl looked like in town. Horrible, horrible story. So people who had never met Laura while she was alive knew what she looked like. So when people were driving down this road in Chula Vista and they're looking at this billboard, they see the light and the shadow make the image of Laura's face. The billboard was two miles between the house And the murder scene. So it was like right in the middle. And word gets out in town. Now this is again before social media. You actually had to walk up to someone and go, Hey buddy, have you seen that billboard? Or you would pick up the phone and be like, Yo, what are you doing tonight? Let's go see the billboard. So it wasn't like someone could tweet something and then a bunch of people showed up. But a bunch of people did show up. At one point, they were recording crowds of like 25,000 people, which is mind-boggling to me. I don't know how big Chula Vista is. But people, huge traffic jams. Cops had to come out and direct traffic because people were driving by this billboard. And that's one thing. We have a bunch of articles on this. If this story happened today, we'd have video footage and and photos and everything like that. We don't have any of that. At least none of it's posted. This was way before the internet was even really a thing. So the father of the girl, Luis Arroyo, says, I got to check this out. And he goes, and he goes, oh my God, that's my daughter. That's my daughter on that billboard. He took her brothers. He had, she had like, I think like a 12 year old brother and a 10 year old brother. They went there and the brothers were like, Laura, Laura. And they started crying. It's a tra- tra- tragic story, tragic story. But 
So the general consensus was this was Laura's image on the board. And you're like, light and shadow, people are imagining things. The police are looking at it and they go, can you take some photos of that? So they had other cops photographing, taking it as evidence. And there was a quote from Detective Wayne Maxey. He goes, it's one of those things where we don't know where it could lead us. And they were at, they asked the billboard people, they said, do you have another person ready to put up a sign there? And the billboard company says, yeah, we actually do have someone. We were just in between putting up advertisements. And the police said, listen, could you do us a favor? This, we don't know if this is a ghost face or anything like that. It's funny because cops tend to be kind of superstitious. The, but this officer wasn't saying, we think there's a ghost here and we're trying to contact her. This officer said, listen, we think this might help lure out the killer. Because if he believes there's some sort of supernatural force going on or something like that, can you not put up a new advertisement? And he goes, yeah, yeah, we'll give it some time. Maybe this will help catch the killer. So it wasn't so much like they thought a giant Laura hand, a ghostly hand's going to reach out and grab him like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. It was just that maybe the guy in the area would just be so overwrought by guilt. But at some point, this the image didn't go away. At some point, the traffic jams are so much some, I think the city disconnected the power to the sign. And then the people in town got up there and reconnected the power. Now, there was also stories that you could see the image of the killer in the background. Now, I heard that out of my National Directory of Haunted Places book. I wasn't able to find any verification in any news articles saying, and some people said you could see the killer. So I'm not for sure about that detail. But anyways, eventually, though, enough time passes, traffic dies down company throws up another billboard the image is no longer seen it wasn't until 2005 when the cops break down a door and this is what 14 years later put your hands on your head put your hands on your head guys wrestling smash hopefully smash his head into the floorboard manuel bracamontes 42 year old man so he would have been in his what What's 14 minus 42? Would it have been 28 something? I think it would have been 28 when this happened. Used to live in the area. Moved out a week before the crime. Had access to a tool that they believe was used in the murder. And they caught him because of the DNA he left at the crime scene. He ends up getting sentenced to death. He ends up getting sentenced to death. And it's interesting because when you look at the early articles, it said there's no sexual assault. This child was not sexually assaulted. She was just chopped up with this weird looking tool that he used at his construction company or something. It wasn't like a a normal weapon that you would see. So that kind of helped him kind of narrow it down. But it was the DNA that finally got him. And it was one of those things that it was a cold case. And they're like, just run the DNA again. And then like, Six, seven years would pass, and they're like, just run it again. And then, can you run it one more time? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll run it as much as we want. This guy murdered a kid. Let's do it. And they finally caught him. But he gets guilty, uh, sentenced to death. And that's where we're at now. The last uh, real article I saw on this was 2005. So I'm assuming that he was appealing his death sentence or something like that. I think it's an interesting story because we have that convergence. We have the, we're at that intersection of paranormal and true crime, which when I started the show, I said that's going to be a common theme. And it pops up every now and then, every now and then. So it's always interesting when it does. But the idea of the billboard, 
and the little girl looking out from the shadows in the light out at the street below her. The father said, you know, I worked on the street that the billboard was like looking down and I figured that was a way for my daughter to watch over me and to send me a message, but I don't know what she's trying to tell me. Damn, that's horrible. I mean, I get that's awesome that he finds that uplifting thing, but imagine it's one thing to lose your child. But then imagine if you saw your child frozen in time. If you truly believe that was her frozen in time, her image looking at you, giant, looming over the night skyscape of Chula Vista. And you just being this father looking up at this image of your daughter and thinking, what are you trying to tell me? And then have it go another 14 years before you finally have any peace about what happened to her. And then let's say that it was some ghostly apparition up there. I think the creepiest part is there's a chance that it was. And there was that brief moment in time where there was no billboard up there. And people were driving by and they happened to recognize the way that it looked as Laura. But what if there was a billboard there? What if there was an Eda Kentucky Fried Chicken, Colonel Sanders taking a big old bite, and yet somehow the soul of this young girl, her ghostly image, was still impressed on that thing. And people just continued to drive by, drive by this billboard, and you have the soul of this young girl looking out, trying to send her father a message, but it's simply being ignored. I, I find that infinitely more creepy. How many messages could be out there? People who are lost. People who are dead. That they're trying to send to their loved ones, but we just don't see because of all of the information overload all around us. Is it possible someone's trying to reach out to you right now? You just don't notice it. You just drive by that sign. As a ghostly presence is trying to send you a message. From the other side. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day. But I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Peace.